first they say God is omnipotent and he's the beginning, he's the end, and he don't he's everywhere and he can do this and he made the waters and the stuff and the da 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 and the earth and all this. But yet they say he can't make gay people. That don't make sense to me. Even before I was going to church, that didn't make sense to me. This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harvin. I met Cecilia at a church with an insane amount of windows in Washington, D.C. Here, she's known as Mama C, and it's easy to see why. She's an open book and talks to you as if you're an old friend. The first time I talked to Cecilia, we were on the phone, but she immediately put me at ease with her warmth. For Cecilia, church has been a solace in a life that hasn't always been simple. She's faced many challenges, challenges which, on their own, would be a feat to conquer in one lifetime. She was born the child of rape and is a survivor of sexual assault herself. She's taken on addiction in many forms, one which led to her gaining nearly 500 pounds. She raised a child by herself, came to terms with her own sexuality, and through it all, gained back the faith she once lost. Now, at 73, she's still fighting. She knows being an older gay African-American woman means being discriminated against on multiple levels. So as with everything else in her life, she's decided to do something about it. Cecilia's become a sort of spokesperson for Mary's House, a retirement home project specifically for LGBTQ elders. They're still in the process of funding, but hope to open in 2019 and eventually become a blueprint for similar homes all around the nation. I, mean, I wanted to ask you, like, why do you think Mary's House is an important thing for the community to have? I, I think that Oh, my God, I can't even tell you how important I think that is. It's so important. I, I just feel like a lot of us, especially our black uh, gays and lesbians and trans, when they lose everybody, like their lover, their wife or husband, uh, their best friend died, and they in this community that they've grown up in and be with these friends for years and years, and then everybody, you look around, ain't nobody left but you you go back to what you think is a safe haven and then that is to your regular straight black community going to nursing home or something. And once people find out about it, they don't treat you well in the nursing homes, the nurses, the administrators, whoever, they do not treat people well. When they find out that they're gay. gay. No, you get slapped. You might not get washed. You, They do a lot of things to you. But I, I don't think many people know that... The vulnerable communities of, you know, elderly, that's compounded when... You're gay and lesbian, et cetera, et cetera. It's compounded triple or four times or whatever. You, they, It's compounded because a lot of people, just like they hate blacks and was taught that they was inferior, they are taught that gay people are sinful. They're going to hell. They're not, they're abomination. They're all these things, they're taught that. And so when they see one, they do whatever they think they should do or want to do. Elder abuse in the LGBTQ community is an issue which has recently come to the forefront, and what's been found is troubling. According to the Simon Fraser University Research Center, LGBTQ people are more vulnerable in nursing homes in particular 
because they are twice as likely to be alone or without children to support and protect them. And abuse often goes unreported because they may not be out or don't want to draw any attention to themselves. In a survey by the National Center on Elder Abuse, 65% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual elders experienced victimization because of their sexual orientation, and 29% had been physically attacked. Cecilia is painfully aware of these dangers. I know that very clearly because a very, very good friend of mine had both his legs cut off because of diabetes. And this oiler used to rape him every night and tell him that he would, uh, nobody would believe him because he was gay. And he committed suicide. And I'll never forget that. That's why when Amani said she was going to do this house, I said, I don't got no money, but what you want me to do? Because we got to know that we have to protect ourselves. And it isn't only physical abuse that makes them vulnerable. According to the National Resource Center on LGBT Aging, about a third of LGBT adults do not have a will or any other form of legal protections for their partner. So couples may not be allowed to see or care for each other once in a hospital or nursing home, and even families can take advantage of this. They come in and take the rugs off the floor. They come in. They take the jury. It's like you ain't been together 50 years and anything is yours. You've been together and you took my child or you took, you caused them to be gay or whatever, you know. And they take everything, everything they can get their hands on and leave your home that you shared with this person for 40 or 50 years in shambles. For some, elder care is the next big issue to tackle, which is why Cecilia believes Mary's house is vital. I said, OK, we'll get this one off the ground and then we'll have one from coast to coast. And I believe that because it's such a righteous thing that it's got to be prosperous. It's got to be somewhere that we won't get beat up, somewhere that nobody will rape us, that we can get washed up like every other kind of person. It's easy to see why Cecilia feels so strongly about being able to live out her years in safety. She's fought hard for her life today. And how she got here has been a long journey one that starts in a small town in Maryland. It was very segregated. You know, the white kids went to the white schools and the black kids went to, like, it was like one room and all from first through the sixth grade went into this one little school that we had. Religion was part of her upbringing very early on. Her mother was a devout Catholic, but fought her own personal demons. She felt like she had a very persecuted life. She loved school really, really a lot. And she was uh, raped, and I was conceived from that rape. And they just pulled her out of school. She always used to tell me about this. How old was she? 14. She was 13, but she had me when she was 14. The way Cecilia talks about her mother, you can feel the pain of the circumstance for both of them. She was really angry because she didn't get the chance to do what she wanted to do. So she used to sing for this little band. And everybody loved her because her voice was so beautiful and she could sing really good. And she was really, really smart. I mean, she only went to like maybe the sixth or seventh grade when they took her out of school. 
and she did all the books and things for my stepfather. She managed all the bills and she managed all the saving. I mean, really, I didn't really know we were really poor, poor people. I mean, we never went without food. And, you know, I had pretty much um, not necessarily what I wanted <laughs> like most kids, but I did have shoes on my feet. But I was kind of resentful of her, too, because she used to always blame it on I stopped this and I stopped that. She was very, she thought that, you know, if she prayed enough, if she kneeled enough, if she went to church enough, that any and everything that was bothering her um, would go away. Cecilia, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with the Catholic religion. One day she came home and... I said... If the priests and the nuns represent God, then I don't have nothing to say about that. I don't want to be bothered. If he don't bother me, I won't bother him. And that was my thing. I got a beating, a real beating. <laughs> For my mom that was saying, you know, you have to be obedient. You can't say that. That's blasphemy and blah, 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 blah. But I didn't say that in her house anymore because that was her law. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> but I didn't, only time, you know, of course she made me go to school because good Catholic got to be, make your first communion, you got to be baptized and you got to go to confession and you got to get confirmed. And then you're a Catholic. She made me do all of that. And I went to school and I did what I had to do and I passed and I did all the things that she wanted me to do. And I never complained about Catholics again. However, life for Cecilia's mother only turned more tragic. Mama had um, a nervous breakdown when I was 16. And they put her in this place called Crownsville, which is a horrible place that was in Maryland, even back then in, in those days when I was 16 years old. And so I don't even know if it's in business anymore. It shouldn't be if it is. What is uh, it? A, 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 an asylum. Back then it was really a... Like you see some of the movies, how asylums were, that's just how it was. Crownville State Hospital was permanently closed for this reason. It was an asylum for what they called feebly-minded African-Americans. Patients either were mentally unstable or had a disease their families didn't have the resources to treat. They were often subjected to experimental operations, and many died there. The one thing that I did get from that is that if I thought that I was having any kind of problems within myself, I would go to a therapist. And I would say, because I would never allow my son to see me in a mental institution like I had to see my mother. After she graduated from high school, Cecilia quickly made the decision to get out of her small town and move to Washington, D.C. She was 17. She figured she finally got away from the religion that her mother forced upon her. The minute I left St. Mary's County in 1962, I said, you know, I bet you I won't need to be finding no church. But then life comes along. I had my son. Cecilia decided to send her son to Catholic school, but only because she was worried about him getting lost in a big public school. The father was an alcoholic and wasn't around to support or take care of them. I had to really work. So I worked a couple of three jobs to send him to Catholic school. But it was okay with me because I, you know, I didn't like to really depend on men and stuff. I, I just like, I worked these three jobs. I mean, you know, I worked as a cook, 
uh, and then I worked at a curry out down the street. Then I walk home, and then on Fridays I worked, and I went to the church and fried the fish and chicken and the potato salad, and and for real, my mother and them didn't believe in like welfare and stuff like that, so I didn't really know anything about that. But even though Cecilia moved away from her small town and created a new life for herself, she wasn't ready to come out. The memories of her hometown haunted her. I always knew that I liked girls when I was young, but I didn't know what to do with it, let me say that. And I really didn't want to know anything about it because the two gay people that I knew, they were treated so disrespectfully and so... I can't even... Horrible, I guess is the word I want to find. Uh, So, you know, like they would call them out of their names... They would kick the guy in the butt, and they gang-raped the lady that was a lesbian. And just, you know, it was just horrible. And so even when I came to D.C., I didn't do anything about that part of my life. So she pushed aside her thoughts and feelings at a cost. What happened was I didn't take care of myself, and I didn't own my own truth. I ate to those feelings. And I had almost gained 500 pounds. This is where religion intersects with Cecilia's life once again at an important moment. One day when she's picking her son up from school, the priest comes up to her. He said he was in a 12-step program, which I had never even heard of. And he said they were starting an OA meeting at the church. Which is Overeaters Anonymous. Yeah, Overeaters Anonymous. And he said he would like for me to come and see. He didn't explain what it was or anything. He just said an OA meeting. Did you know what that was when he said OA? No, I didn't. I did not know what that was. I had never heard of a 12-step program before. OA is Overeaters Anonymous, an offshoot of what began as Alcoholics Anonymous, a group she would also eventually join. I really appreciate that priest for taking me to OA because without that, I don't think I'd be living today. I would drink compulsively or I would eat compulsively. And and most of the time, the eating always overcame the drinking because it was cheaper. I had got fatter and fatter and fatter. And when I went into OA, I just kind of went in and I just did what I was told. And I went from a size 56 dress down to a size 8. Whoa. I should have bought you a picture, couple of pictures. <laughs> you can send them. I, that's amazing. And with the weight off, Cecilia began to experience a side of her life she never had before. Of course, I hadn't been dated when I was a teenager because I was this big fat girl that had funny looking eyes and... You know, um, nobody, I mean, none of the guys wanted to bother with me. And so, you know, I didn't have a very good teenage life. So when I lost all this weight, I went out and I bought me a wardrobe to die for. Good for you. <laughs> and I just, I, I just used to go and go and go. Out. And we used to just be out, I'd be out every night and then get up and go to work at 3.30. And we would dance and drink and whatever. And that's when my alcoholism really creeped off the shelf big. Because if you're 56 and you go to a size 8, you're not going to eat. For the first time, she began confronting her past. Her mother wasn't the only one who dealt with abuse. Sexual assault also touched Cecilia's life when she was back home. 
by that time I had got in touch with molestation and stuff that I had kind of hid that I didn't, I mean, I knew it happened, but I just didn't want to deal with it. So I didn't. But when you weigh them as much as I do and you lose the weight, there's no place to hide. You're not hiding behind the food. And all the stuff was jumping up in my brains. And I, I think it was in my mid-20s or a little bit after that. That's when the first time I went to therapy to deal with that. And I was in OA. So Cecilia committed to meetings. And she committed to therapy to keep herself on track, even when her addiction became slippery. I went to a meeting every day for I don't know how many years, because for me, that was my leveler. I, I, I guess that's the only way I can call it. That was my thing that I knew I was going to go in there and somebody was going to say something that I needed. And I went, no matter where I was, what I was doing, if I was out dancing, I'd been, been to a meeting first. And, um, and that was A? A. AAA and OA. Sometimes I would go to both the same day. I went somewhere every day. And one thing about uh, having stuff that you don't want to deal with, what you do is you keep changing seats on the Titanic. It was the food. So the weight got good. So I went to alcohol. So the alcohol and the food was good. So I went to bad relationships. First of all, because I'd never had one that meant anything that much. And secondly, I had lost all the weight, and I was kind of cute. I do say that. (laughs) And I had a bad wardrobe because I always loved clothes. And then I went from that to overspending. I was in so much debt, and I didn't care. I let that one go and moved to a new addiction. And I went to Codependence Anonymous, I've been to OA, I've been to DA, I've been to AA. I I mean, I I, I really, I used to tell people in the meeting, I really admire people that can go through the molestation and the rapes and stuff and not pick up addictions. I, I really do admire that, but I wasn't one of those. Cecilia isn't alone. Studies continually reveal a strong link between victims of sexual assault and addiction, especially when it happens to young children. According to the American Journal on Addictions, 75% of women who enter substance abuse programs report being sexually abused as a child. So for Cecilia, learning about her addictions meant coming to terms with her past and to face it head on. But 12-step programs have a strong Christian influence. And many of the steps include recognizing a higher power in order to overcome addiction. So after 20 years of not stepping into a church, Cecilia had to make sense of what was saving her. Certainly, I have had to grow into that part even today with this church because so many things had happened to me. I could not possibly believe in my mind that it was a God that really loved me or liked me. Because I had these funny-looking eyes. Nobody in my town had them. Nobody in my family had them. I was a product of rape. And a lot of the older families and the old people knew that. And I got told that a lot. And my real father, they said that he, he, they would accuse him of me because they said I look exactly like him. And he would say, no, no, 
no, absolutely not. She's not mine. So I just could not believe that there was a good God anywhere that could possibly want a little girl go through a lot of things like I did. Yet it was her renewed faith that allowed her to accept her life and herself. We should never hide because God made us and he doesn't make any mistakes, which I had heard that in program a lot, but it really made a big difference to me. And so I, I just know that with program and and finding God that I have in my life today was God's plan for me. After tackling addiction, finding God, losing more than 300 pounds, and raising a child by herself, Cecilia decided she was ready for another tremendous milestone. She was ready to come out. I was really, really scared, but it was two really good friends that was two lesbians. First one I met, an African-American, because I thought I was the only black person that had this white disease of compulsive overeating. Because <laughs> there would never be no black people in the meetings. I was like, really? what in that? You know, why do I have to have it? So I met this one black lady came in one day, and I was like in my mind, oh, my God, another black person. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and... um. Then she opened her mouth, in which I will not divulge what she's saying. I said, all right, Cecilia, back up. She crazy shit. <laughs> and we've been friends ever since. I mean, she's one of my best buddies. <laughs> and she really helped me to acknowledge, and this other woman, too, that was lesbian, she helped me to acknowledge who I was and helped me through the process. I don't know what I would have did, probably, if God hadn't put her in my life around being gay. I, I just don't know what I would have did. Every step of what I've done in my life is a growth period for me. I mean, I was so comfortable with myself because one of the things, and I would share this with anyone that's trying to come out or struggling, go somewhere and be with a support group and learn about who you are. Cecilia hid herself from others for decades constantly editing her actions and feelings. Once she let that all go, life became fun again. I really remember this just like if it was yesterday. I was walking from the Ames, and this fine, fine, fine young lady was walking out the door in front of me, and I thought my breath would give away. <laughs> and then I looked down. I'm a, I'm a legs woman. <laughs> I looked down and she had the prettiest legs i ever seen. I followed her all the way from Ames to 4th and Rhode Island to the corner just to look at her legs. And I called my buddy. I said, guess what I just did? I gave myself permission to just kind of ogle this woman. But I, I can't explain. It was one of those times in my life that I allowed myself to be who I was and enjoy it every minute. I do enjoy every minute of my life. Then something happened that made coming out even more necessary. She fell in love. And you can't really hide but when you find someone. Because I used to say, I go by myself and I come by myself so there's no tails dragged in between. And so when I met Esther, I don't know, it was just something different. You know, she was my age, a little bit older than me. And it just hit me really quick that 
she was somebody that I wanted to have in my life. But you don't, you can't keep that person hidden. And then one Saturday, we, I was going someplace, and she had came by the house. And then when we left, I turned around, and she said, oh, yeah, by the way, and we both said at the same time, I love you. And we both said, oh, we need to talk about this at the same time. But when it was time to tell her family, the religion that helped her regain her life and find the strength to come out was turned against her. When I came out to my family, I called them all and said, we're meeting at Granny's house on Sunday, be there. I said, you know, I haven't changed. My name is still Cecilia. And one of my cousins, and she's gone now, she had her Bible under her arm. Oh, God, I hope my, none of you see this. But anyway, she had a Bible, and then she started telling me about I was going to hell, and I wasn't, you know, it's a sin and stuff like that. And that's why I say never come out unless you're sure of who you are. Because, and I mean sure in your heart of hearts, and whatever they say to you can't hurt you. Whatever they do to you can't hurt you because, first of all, they will eat you alive with them verses. And secondly, they will tell you that you're wrong until you don't know whether you're coming or going. If you come out and you having second thoughts in your mind and in your heart, then they, they'll, they'll kill you with that crap. Do not, do not do that to yourself because then you spend the next four or five years trying to get back to where you was before you told them. <laughs> Thankfully, Cecilia knew who she was. She had spent enough time figuring that out. And she knew what was in her heart. Esther and Cecilia decided to get married in a church. We had a beautiful holy union. I think 87 to this year. Is that our 30th year? I think it's our 30th year. Wow! Okay, God, I need 20 more years to act out and act up and get better. (laughs) She's got a heart as big as all outside. We've had our difficulties. You know, we've been together since 87, so, you know, we wouldn't be human if we didn't have some kind of set to. I know for me, it's about keeping my word about I I love you and sickness and health. I love you till the day I die and the day you die or whatever. For me, that's my promise. And even though she's kind of stubborn and stuff, it's nothing that she won't do for me. But, you know, we we do well for two 70-year-old people that kind of set in our ways. And Cecilia is hopeful for the future because of the difference she sees today. I'm so excited about these youngsters. Like, I have a cousin that came out when she was like in elementary school and took her her woman friend to a prom with her. Girlfriend was dressed up in a gown and other girlfriend was dressed up in a tuxedo. And nobody bothered her. I mean, this kind of stuff was unheard of. I am proud to see our transgender children. And some of them, you know, are very hard-headed or whatever, but most children are. But I'm glad to see some of them coming out and some of them going to churches and going to clubs and going to places that can help them. Great strides have been taken in just the past couple of years. But despite major milestones, there is still no federal law that bans discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Meaning, in most states, someone can legally be fired from a job because they're transgender, and a landlord can evict someone because they're gay. At this moment, 
the Supreme Court is deciding on a case which could have far-reaching implications, pitting religious freedom against protections for LGBTQ people. Yes, I'm talking about the wedding cake case. But for Cecilia, her faith and her identity as a gay woman are wrapped up in each other. It's her faith that has given her the strength to keep fighting for herself and others. And it's part of the wisdom she passes on to the next generation, or anyone struggling to accept themselves. The bottom line is, love God of your choosing. It don't have to be of my choosing, of your choosing. And love yourself unconditionally. You don't have to be the best made-up person in the world. You don't have to have a five or $600 gown. I do, and I love it. But you don't have to have it. I got some cheap ones, too. They look good, too, honey. You know, it depends on where you're going and what you're doing. But love yourself. I can't say that enough and know who you are. I, I, if I had 20 hours, I'd be still saying that. <laughs> so be good to yourself and good to your friends and just... Know that you're okay, no matter what nobody else say. You're okay, because God's okay, and he made you, and he don't make mistakes. Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date on all our episodes. Check out my Twitter, at Michelle Harvin, to find all the links and to see some cool extra stuff like pictures and videos of our incredible storytellers. Or you can go to LegacyThePodcast.com to see all that and more. Logo design by Elise Harvin, tech by Chris Herbert, and thanks to everyone who has helped in one way or another. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in next week. You don't want to miss it. <laughs>